You are listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Shaden Cole. I am the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. I want to talk about provisionism. Ah, provisionism. I would not have a lot of material if it were not for provisionism. Now, I, I say this in jest, but every so often, I listen to leading provisionists like Leighton Flowers and others, and I listen to their talking points, and I hear their argumentation and their understanding of Scripture, and I feel like I just have to respond. And so one of the things I'm going to respond to today is this whole issue of judicial hardening, parables, and one of the things that they like to say a lot is this whole idea of blindfolding a corpse. Why do you have to blindfold a corpse if we're corpse-like dead and totally unable? Uh, what's the purpose of, uh, of this? And so this whole blinding by, by Satan, um, are sinners born with the inability to hear, see, and understand truth? And if so, why did Jesus speak in parables to hide the truth? It would not make sense if a person is already born with this incapacity. And so there's all these issues related to judicial hardening, blinding, becoming calloused, total inability, the blinding of Satan. All these issues kind of run together in their theology. And so how do we answer their question? Okay, how do we answer the question? Their question simply is, if a sinner is born totally unable to see, hear, and understand truth, then it would not make sense to speak in parables to these people if they're already born with that capacity or incapacity. So how do we answer that? Well, let's first interact with some assumptions or presuppositions of the provisionist, because every theology brings some presuppositions to the table uh, when, when understanding their differences in worldview. And so what do the provisionists actually bring to the table when they interpret scriptures? Now, I'm trying to be fair and generous here, but I, I, I'm going to give two things, and, and I've been interacting with provisionists for years, and so I, I think I'm pretty accurate on this. But here's the first assumption, assertion, presupposition, a theological point that the provisionists bring to the table in any discussion. First, provisionists adamantly deny the doctrine of total inability as a condition from birth as a result of being fallen in Adam and being dead in sin. So we have to establish from the very beginning, most provisionists deny total inability. Moral and spiritual inability from birth, inherited as a condition, being born in Adam, being guilty, being spiritually dead, they deny total inability. Now, in that denial on the flip side, what do they affirm? Well, in denying total inability on the flip side, positively, they adamantly affirm libertarian free will. In that sinners can make the contracausal free will choice to choose to accept Christ or reject Christ because their will is not in bondage to sin. They can rise above their heart's greatest inclination. They can choose positively for Christ when the gospel appeal is made. When the gospel appeal is made. And, and here's the key point 
in provisionism doctrine. The gospel appeal is the sufficient and provenient grace which enables a positive response. The gospel is the grace. And once a sinner hears the gospel, he or she has the capacity to respond to that gospel appeal. There's nothing spiritual or moral inside of them preventing them from making that choice. They're not in bondage to sin. They're not slaves to sin. And even if they were slaves to sin, a provisionist would say they can still call out and ask to be released from that slavery to sin. And so those are the two assumptions or presuppositions that a provisionist brings to the table, a denial of total inability and an affirmation of libertarian free will. But let me just deal with, I think, a false assertion or a false accusation that provisionists make against us in the Reformed tradition. You will often hear provisionists say something like this. They think that being dead in sin means sinners are inactive like a dead-like corpse. Sinners are corpse-like dead, they're inactive. We hear terms such as corpse-like dead, uh, meaning that provisionists think that we as Calvinists believe sinners, sinners are somewhat either neutral or inactive in that deadness. Now let me address this because this is a very important point that maybe is sometimes confusing. When, when we use the terminology spiritual deadness, and obviously that comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once used to live. We believe that being dead in sin does not mean spiritual inactivity. It does mean that without being made alive by sovereign grace, we will continue being in Adam. We will continue to be unable to come to faith in Christ. We are unable to come to faith in Christ. We are unwilling to come to Christ. But it does not mean that we're spiritually inactive, corpse-like dead. As a matter of fact, the Bible gives many descriptions of the unregenerate person, and a lot of the terminology is active rebellion. So let's just look at some of these. In Romans chapter 1, 18, Paul writes, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Suppress the truth. Unbelievers, unregenerate, actively suppress the truth. Now, this verb is in the present active indicative, which means that unbelievers are constantly continually suppressing truth. It's not just a one-time suppression. It is an active, continual rejecting of God's plain truth of general revelation. So being dead in sin means that you actively, continually suppress truth. And why do you do that? Because it's your nature. You are spiritually dead. You are morally guilty. You are in bondage to sin. And so because of that condition, you actively, in your unregenerate condition, suppress the truth. Okay, let's look at the famous passage, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Notice that Paul says you were dead. There's that spiritual deadness, but notice how he defines it. In verse 2, he says, in which you once walked. That's a key term in the book of Ephesians. Peripateo, walked. Some translations use the word lived. It's, it's a verb that really means the totality of your life, your lifestyle, the, the um, identity of who you are, your active identity. And then Paul says that, that in this spiritual deadness, you walked or you lived constantly according to the world, the world system, constantly according to the prince of the power of the air, Satan. You lived in the passions of your flesh. Now, Paul changes the verb there. Earlier, it was the word walked, but then he changes it to you lived in the passions of the flesh. That's a different Greek word, anastrepho. Again, it carries the same idea of behavior or conduct. And then Paul uses another verb here, carrying out our sinful desires. So Paul defines here what it means to be dead. He doesn't leave us in the dark. He basically says you once lived or walked constantly in a lifestyle of following the world, following Satan, living according to your flesh, and actively pursuing the lust of the flesh. So sinful humans who are dead in sin are not spiritually inactive or even neutral, but it's an active rebellion. Now, a provisionist may agree with us up to this point, and they may say, okay, we affirm total depravity. We know, we know biblically uh, people are sinners, that they're, they're corrupted, but they will not go all the way to affirm total inability. So, Spiritual deadness is an inability to believe in Jesus. So when you think about this, uh, let's con just to continue to see some of these verbs that Paul uses to describe the unregenerate person who's totally unable. Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk. Okay, there's that key word in, in Ephesians. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, i.e. pagans, unre unregenerate. How did they walk? In the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, interestingly here in this passage of Scripture, and we'll get to this in just a moment, Paul addresses Gentile pagans not judicially hardened Jews. And this is not a condition that people grew hardened or calloused over time like the provisionists like to assert. Paul is basically giving a definition of the unregenerate, the pagan Gentiles. And he's saying to the Ephesians, listen, that's no longer your identity. You used to be dead in sin. You used to live like that. You used to be that, but that's not how you are anymore. You have a new identity. And what was that identity? What was that active rebellion in your spiritual deadness? He says they were darkened in understanding. 
Okay, this, was, this is a perfect tense verb, which means a permanent, kind of a permanent la- lasting condition in the past. Alienated from the life of God, also in the perfect tense. Calloused, perfect tense. Giving themselves up to sin. So, so all of these conditions are active things that the unregenerate does. Spiritual corpse-like dead does not mean spiritual inactivity. It means active rebellion, walking in accordance with your condition of being rebellious against God and enslaved to sin. Okay, let's think about Romans 8, 6-9. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Again, spiritual inability here. It talks about the mind that is set on the flesh. The mind that is actively hostile to God. A a, a mind or a heart that actively does not and cannot submit to God's law. A mind and a heart and an unregenerate person who cannot please God. Again, these are active, rebellious ways in which the spiritually dead person operates out of their nature. Colossians 1, 21 through 22. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Again, the unregenerate person is alienated, they're hostile in mind, they're, they're doing evil deeds. Again, this is not spiritual neutrality or spiritual inactivity, this is active rebellion. Now, let's get to the passage of Scripture that gives another description of the unregenerate unbeliever. This is the whole idea of the gospel being veiled to those who are perishing. It's foolishness. So Paul makes a lot of arguments in 1st and 2nd Corinthians about the perishing and those who are called. He, he contrasts the only two types of people there are, believers and unbelievers, saved and lost, regenerate, unregenerate, the called, the perishing. So in 1st Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 and 24, the, the cross is folly, foolishness, moronic, really in the original language, to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Okay, perishing. Let me just stop and talk about the word perishing. I addressed this a few weeks ago in a sermon. When you see the word perish, like from John three sixteen, it, it, it does not just merely mean to die, to cease to exist. The word perish carries the idea of suffering God's wrath being an object of God's wrath. It really means to perish in hell. And so Paul is contrasting two types of people here. Those who are perishing, those who are going to hell, those who are refusing to believe, those who are rejecting, those who are unbelievers, with those who are being saved. And he goes on to say in verse 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Okay, why do they believe? 
Why are those saved who believe? Because in verse 22, he says, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Okay, this moronic, foolish message that Paul is preaching of a crucified Savior is a stumbling block to both Jews and Greeks. But then in verse 24, he gives the answer. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and wisdom of God. Okay, so why do some Jews and Greeks believe the foolishness of the message and others do not and find it moronically offensive and perish? Nowhere in this passage of Scripture does Paul attribute anything to human will or desire. He says it's because of God's call. God's calling upon their life. Now, provisionists will affirm the two groups. That's not the point of contention. Any provisionist will say, yes, there are those that are perishing and there are those that are saved. There's lost and they're saved. There, there's, there's two categories of people. That's not the contention. The contention is why. Why do some perish and why do some believe? Now, the answer from the text is that those who believe and do not find the cross foolish are those who've been chosen and effectually called by God. You go on and continue to read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and, God, God, and Paul talks about those being chosen. So the answer that we get from Paul in the text is the reason why some unregenerate, both Greek and Jews, believe the gospel, the foolish gospel, is because they were chosen and they were called. The provisionists would say, no, the reason that some believe and some don't is because of libertarian free will. There's no moral or spiritual inability preventing those people from believing the foolishness of the cross. Once they hear the message of the cross, that's enough to enable a response. Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians Chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, to say, We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Again, the two groups of people, those being saved, those perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Now notice what Paul says here. There are some people that are going to find the message of Christ this foolish, moronic message of Christ, a bloody Savior, to be the fragrance of life. They're going to accept it. They're going to receive it. They're going to see the glory of Christ. Others are going to see that same message of a bloody cross of Jesus to be a fragrance of death. To them, it's going to smell like a dead body. They're going to be repulsed. And so, again, there's two groups of people, those who are being saved, those who are perishing. And the question is, okay, why? Why do some believe and others not? The answer from this text is calling and choosing. Now, let's get to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, which is really where there's this point of contention in the whole issue of Satan blinding the minds of unbelievers. And, and we have this terminology they often use of putting a blindfold on a corpse. Why would you need to put a blindfold on a corpse if the corpse is already born totally unable? It seems redundant. So let's read this passage of Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 3-6. through six. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Again, there's that term perishing. Paul uses it all throughout First and Second Corinthians. In their case, the God of this world. Now, that's just code word for Satan. 
the devil, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, now that's, a, that's a lot. That's a mouthful there from Paul. But what he says there in verse 3 is the gospel's veiled to those who are perishing, those who are not believing, and that the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the glory of Christ. And so here's the question that the provisionists often ask. What would be the purpose of Satan's blinding of an unbeliever in the Calvinistic viewpoint? Their argument would be something like this. If humans are totally unable to believe in Christ or respond positively to the gospel appeal, then what's the purpose of Satan's blinding? Aren't they already born unable to see, hear, or believe? Or do they, go, or do they grow calloused and blinded over time by rejecting truth? What's the purpose of the blinding of Satan in the Reformed view? Now let me give a quote here from Leighton Flowers. Leighton Flowers says this in, in regards to this passage of Scripture and the whole idea of Satan blinding unbelievers. Quote, Does this effort of Satan strike anyone as being completely unnecessary if the claims of Calvinism are true regarding man's total inability from birth? If we are born completely unable to see, hear, understand, or respond willingly to the Word of God, as the doctrine of total ability, inability suggests, wouldn't Satan's work to blind people be completely unnecessary and redundant. Okay, that's, the, that's his argument. It seems that if you affirm total inability, the blinding of Satan would be unnecessary or redundant because you're already born blinded. Why would Satan have to blind you a second time if you're already born blinded? It seems redundant. Now, let's address this because I have not heard many Calvinists address Leighton Flowers on this issue. I want to address it head on. Okay, this assumes in his view, that God does not have a decree that actually involves Satan. What you assume as redundant or unnecessary, in our view, is the actual working out of God's decree on unbelievers where Satan is actually used of God to blind unbelievers so that God's power of regeneration might be on display in bringing life to those who will see. So we do not see a redundancy or an unnecessary work, but what we see is God working out his sovereign decree in time. Leighton sees this as Satan's ongoing effort. Notice what he says. This ongoing effort. Does this effort of Satan strike anyone as completely unnecessary? What Leighton assumes is that Satan is continually doing this all the time. It's an ongoing effort. Now let's just look at the grammar in the passage of Scripture. It merely says the God of this world has blinded. Okay, that's an aorist, active, indicative. 
Okay, aorist active indicative, Satan is the one who is the active agent in doing the blinding. It's in the aorist tense, which means it's past tense. Now, the text does not say when, according to any point in time, Satan did the blinding. But the verb in the aorist tense will not allow this to be an ongoing blinding or an ongoing effort by Satan. It's not in the present active. If it was in the present active, it would be an ongoing effort. But it's in the aorist. Now, if it was a past tense, there is a past tense that's ongoing past tense. That's the imperfect tense in the Greek. The imperfect tense is the idea of ongoing action continually happening in the past. And so if it was in the imperfect tense, it, it would say something like this. Satan kept on continually blinding the minds of unbelievers in the past. He kept on, do, it was an ongoing blinding in the past. Present tense would be, it's an ongoing blinding that's happening right now. The text just simply says, eris tense, simple snapshot action, punctiliar point in time, Satan blinded the minds of un unbelievers. So the assumption by the provisionist here is that Satan's blinding is an ongoing activity on unbelievers. But the Greek grammar will not allow that. So let's just ask the question. Could not this blinding actually part of God's decree of total inability in all sinners from birth? You see, here's the issue. The conclusion on both sides is the same. The result of Satan's blinding is a spiritual inability to see Christ in all of his glory and thus repent and believe. That's the end result on both views. Now, I've never heard, and maybe I've missed it, and maybe I haven't read it, and I, and I don't listen to them all the time because they have, especially Leighton, he has stuff like sometimes three or four times a day. I don't have the time to do that. But I've never really heard the provisionist explanation of Satan's blinding. They do a great job of talking about how it's redundant in, in contrast to total inability, but I would like a positive treatment of what you actually believe in Satan's blinding. Is it a judicial hardening? Does this happen later in life after a person has grown callous? Do they deny this blinding of unbelievers from birth? Is this something that, that, that people are born with that Satan has done, or does it happen later on in time? Is it an ongoing thing? Again, Cannot the blinding by Satan be God's ordained means to actually define total inability? The assumption is that the blinding by Satan sometimes happens later on in a person's life, and it's an ongoing thing. Now, the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus withholds truth from those he chooses to withhold it from. And the Bible also clearly teaches that God must grant grace to make a sinner alive and to have faith in Christ. So what role then does Satan play in this blinding? Again, cannot the blinding by Satan actually be part of God's decree in total inability from birth? I think the provisionists have a hard time accepting that God actually has an eternal sovereign decree that he made before the foundation of the world that he is actually working out in time, providentially. They see inconsistencies 
in Satan's blinding of an already blind person. They assume the person's already blinded, and Satan does it sometime later on in their life. They assume that the blinding by Satan is categorically different than total inability. Again, I'll just ask the question, cannot the spiritual inability of sinners from birth actually be the blinding by Satan? In other words, cannot Satan's blinding simply be one way in which people are unable to come to Christ and God has worked out his decree through that? So in their view, what's the purpose of Satan's blinding? Does Satan do this outside of God's decree? Is God not sovereign over Satan in decreeing that he blind people? Is Satan somehow working independent of God's decree, working on his own, doing this maybe by God's bare permission? I've not heard their answer. What they're quick to do is to deny total inability, and they're quick to say that this blinding is redundant or unnecessary, but I've never heard a clear explanation as to the purpose of Satan's blinding in relation to God's decree and sovereignty over Satan. The point of this passage is that if anyone who's blinded by Satan is ever going to have their eyes open to the glory of Christ, God must do the internal and supernatural work in the heart to take away this blindness. Because that's what verse 6 says. God has shown in our hearts. God has done a supernatural work in the hearts of the unregenerate person to take those blinders away and to bring life. Like on the day of creation, let there be life. God brings the new birth, the new life. So the provisionist argues vehemently against total inability. But how do they positively deal with the role of Satan's blinding? How does God overcome this blindness? If humans, unregenerate humans, have libertarian free will, and all they need to do is hear the gospel appeal, then, then what's this purpose of Satan's blinding? What's Satan's blinding in their view? Is the gospel appeal the only means God uses to overcome this blindness? When the gospel appeal comes, does the sinner have the in inherent ability to overcome Satan's blinding power by simply just hearing the gospel? what role does the gospel appeal have in Satan's blinding? In other words, is the gospel appeal in and of itself powerful enough by itself, just the gospel appeal, to overcome the blinding by Satan? Or does God have to do, as they would often say of us, an extra mystical, mysterious internal work of regeneration to actually overcome that inability? I have not heard that answer. Why does God have to do a deep work in the heart to shine the light of the gospel and overcome the blinding if libertarian free will is true? Would not the unregenerate heart just need to hear the gospel and that would be sufficient for them to respond positively? How do the provisions explain, verse 6, this regenerative, powerful internal work on the heart God has to do to overcome blindness? Now, what we believe the Bible teaches in regards to God's sovereign grace are two important truths. Number one, God actively gives supernatural grace to his elect through effectual calling and regeneration. 
That is key to Reformed theology. God actively has to give supernatural grace to his elect to overcome spiritual inability. This comes through the effectual call and regeneration. It's irresistible, sovereign grace. It's overcoming grace. God has to actively give this grace. But second, and this is something that is a corollary, but it's not often talked about, God does withhold saving grace to the reprobate. In other words, to the unelect, to the reprobate, God does not grant grace. God withholds sovereign, supernatural, saving grace. Now, for the reprobate, for those that are not chosen, God does not have to somehow infuse or impart unbelief or sin in their lives because they're already dead in sin. They're already fallen in Adam. They're already unable to come to Christ. God does not, does not give them regeneration, but he passes over them and leaves them in their sin. So God grants grace to his elect. God withholds grace from the reprobate. Neither one deserves it. No one deserves God's grace because if God has to give grace, it ceases to be grace. It becomes something that's owed. And so God actively gives supernatural sovereign grace to his elect. God merely withholds that grace, passes over, does not intervene in any way to bring regeneration or life to the reprobate, but leaves them in their sin. Now, Deuteronomy 29.4 says something very interesting. Deuteronomy 29.4. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. What's that verse saying? The ability to hear, the ability to see, the ability to understand has to come as a gift from God. This is a key understanding when we think about parables or blinding or judicial hardening in the New Testament. The Lord has not given you. The Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. So in order for anybody to hear, see, understand, perceive, the Lord has to give it. And again, this is not giving you an opportunity to use your free will to do those things. As I've often heard, the Lord grants faith. They say the Lord just grants the opportunity for you to use your faith. The Lord just grants the opportunity for you to use your repentance or for you to repent. It's more of a granting of an opportunity or a granting of a a possibility. No, the Lord must grant it. The Lord must give it. The Lord must do it. So, We believe that the Lord must change the heart to enable a sinner to understand truth. The Lord has to open eyes for people to see. The Lord has to open ears for people to hear. The provisionists, they do not affirm this truth. They don't believe God has to change the heart so that the heart will believe. They believe that the human heart is fallen. They affirm total depravity. They believe the heart is corrupt. It's inclined toward evil. But the human heart still retains 
that libertarian free will to respond positively when the gospel appeal is presented. God does not have to grant faith as a gift because the sinner has the ability to choose in their view. We believe that God grants faith and the ability to understand truth, eyes to see, ears to hear. He gives that to the elect and he withholds that from the reprobate. And Jesus even says something to this effect in Matthew 11, 25 through 26. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, before I address this, I know what the provisionist is going to say, that this was for a specific period in time that God purposely blinded those Jews during that day so that they would carry out the crucifixion, and it was a temporary hardening or blinding. It wasn't permanent, and that later on those same people uh, could possibly come back to faith. But let's just deal with what the text says. Who alone does the hiding in the revealing? The Lord. And why does he do it? He does it according to his gracious will. He doesn't do it in response to what humans would do or what he foresaw humans would do. God is absolutely sovereign. Now, the provisionist is not going to deny that Jesus purposely hid truth. They're not going to deny that. That's actually a big part of their theology, that Jesus did, while he was down from heaven, purposely hid truth from the Jews of his day. But they will argue, and here's the point of contention, the main point of contention, their argument is that it's for a different purpose than what we as Calvinists argue it's for. So the point of contention is not that God hides truth or God blinds or God does something to the Jews of Jesus' day to prevent them from believing. That's not the point of contention. The point of contention is why does God do it or what's the purpose of it or what's the, what's the ultimate effect of that? They would say, the provisionists, that Jesus spoke in parables and Jesus purposely hid truth at that time on self-hardened Jews who over time kept rejecting, kept rejecting, and they grew calloused. They used their libertarian free will to reject truth over and over. And because of their constant obstinance, God judicially hardened them so that at that time they would be blinded, they would be hardened to fulfill God's plan to crucify Jesus. The Jews had to be blinded to truth in order to carry out God's plan to crucify Jesus. In other words, it was a temporary hardening a temporary hiding, a temporary not revealing of truth. These Jews could be saved later on. Maybe after Jesus rose from the dead, and, and th th these same Jews that were hidden or, or, were, or were hardened in their parables um, could, could be saved later on. This was only for the purpose of the messianic secret, they would say. Don't tell anybody, Jesus said, until I rise again. Uh, let this messianic secret unfold so that these, these blinded Jews, these callous Jews, would bring about the greater purpose of the crucifixion. After the resurrection, there would be hope for these Jews to be saved. 
So here, where's the point of contention? That is not our answer. That's not the Calvinistic answer as to why God spoke in parables and why God blinded and why God hardened. Question. Why would God use a parable to harden those who, according to our view of inability, are naturally set against trusting Christ in the first place because we can't hear, see, or understand, and we're born that way? So what's our answer? Why did God do it? Again, the point of contention is not, did God harden the Jews? Did God blind the Jews? Did God speak in parables? That's not the point of contention. The point of contention is why? Well, our answer is this, the Reformed answer. Our answer is to further harden the hearts of these reprobate Jews against the gospel as a form of judicial divine judgment. And it's in relation to committing the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. If you go back and you read the context of the Gospels, especially in Matthew and Mark, they commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is attributing to Jesus the works of the devil while he was there in the flesh, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And so because of their obstinance because of their rejection their 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 hard-heartedness these reprobate jews are further hardened as a form of more judgment upon them let me give you uh kurt daniel i mean he's written that huge history and theology of calvinism um, a big a big work Um, he says this regarding the use of parables he would say this for the elect God used the parables to grant knowledge and faith. But for the reprobate, God used them to confuse and harden. Of course, it develops gradually. Like the disciples, an elect may be confused. But as he reads and hears more, he gradually understands more and comes to faith. Conversely, a reprobate may at one time have a certain amount of understanding, but in time, gradually loses it. So what's the purpose of speaking in parables? What's the purpose of blindfolding a corpse? What's the purpose of hiding truth so that they cannot hear, see, or understand if total inability is true, that people are already born in that state? When God withholds grace by hiding truth, by blinding, the reprobate can fall deeper into depravity and become more calloused and more hardened. Augustine said it this way, God thus blinds and hardens simply by letting alone and withdrawing his aid. And God can do this by judgment that's hidden, although not in any way being unjust. God can withdraw aid. In other words, remember our two Assertions. God sovereignly must grant the ability to hear, see, understand, respond actively. God sovereignly does that in the lives of the elect. Conversely, in the reprobate, in those that are not chosen, God does not grant grace. And God can actually withhold 
restraining grace or, or common grace in a sense that the, the, the reprobate would fall even more deeper into a state of hardness or depravity. R.C. Sproul says this, all that God has to do to harden, people hard is to re- harden people's hearts is to remove restraints. He gives them a longer leash. In a sense, he gives them enough rope to hang themselves, to remove restraints. Here's the point. Evil is already present in the heart of the reprobate. God simply gives the person more allowance to act upon that evil nature. God removes, per se, the water of grace from the clay, and it will naturally harden because that's its nature to do so. Now, it may take longer in some people or shorter depending upon the condition of the unregenerate heart because I think there are degrees of depravity and hardness. Well, let's talk about judicial hardening in Leighton Flowers and the Provisionist View. Leighton Flowers says they have become calloused, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and I would heal them. That's a quote from Acts 28:27. He argues they were not born calloused, but over time they had grown hardened in the religious self-righteousness which prevented them from hearing, seeing, and responding to the revelation of God. Okay, so his argument is they were not born in that callous condition, but they grew calloused or they grew hardened over time when they rejected the gospel. And that's a quote from Acts 28, 27. They became calloused. Otherwise, they might see with their ears, hear with their, see with their eyes, hear with their ears and understand with their hearts, turn and I would heal them. Now, let's just respond to his argument here. Because he argues that they were not born in that condition, but they grew in that condition over time. Now, let's just say that we agree, we do not believe that an unregenerate person is born hardened or born calloused. We would agree with him on that, on that truth. Sorry. Okay. Again. Total inability is not necessarily the same thing as being calloused or hardened. Here's the question, though. Why did they become callous? Now, again, it doesn't necessarily have to be over time. I don't think the grammar in that Acts passage actually has to give a duration of time that, it, that, that they grew calloused over time. Some translations have that. They grew calloused over time. Um, the question is, why did they become calloused? Whether it was gradually over time or whether it was just they grew calloused. What about the unregenerate person would lead to them being calloused? Would not a person with libertarian free will be at any time, at any time, able to respond positively? Why would a person with libertarian free will grow calloused? Is there any inherent property or inclination or condition within an unregenerate person to lead to this? A sinner is born totally depraved and totally unable to come to Christ. And when God removes restraints or does not bring any grace to these people, they're going to go into further depravity. They will harden like clay does without any moisture. Let's talk about clay. 
because that's a metaphor used in the Bible. And oftentimes, especially in Romans chapter 9, you've got this whole idea about clay and hardening. Clay, because of its inherent property as clay, left to itself without any positive moisture or any positive molding by the potter, what will happen to clay if there's no molding or moisture or work on it from the outside to keep it moist or to keep it shaped? It will end up hardened because of its nature. Left alone over time, clay will harden because that's its nature to do so. In the same way, sinners left over time where God gives them over to their own depravity and does not intervene with grace, they will harden, some faster than others. Again, let's address something that Leighton Flowers says. He says, They are being judicially hardened so as to seal them in their callous condition. Why? To accomplish a greater redemptive purpose through their rebellion the crucifixion of Christ and the engrafting of the Gentiles into the church. They're judicially hardened for a time. So God could accomplish his purpose of the cross. They're cut off for a time. Now, this assumes that those who are cut off, those who are hardened, those who are judicially hardened are not the reprobate. But they have a second chance later on to believe. So, let's ask the question. Let's just ask the question. What must happen for a hardened, calloused, cut-off person to believe? What has to happen? In other words, how do they get unhardened? If, if, if they're hardened and they're calloused and they're blinded, what has to happen to them to get out of that condition? Are they in the same condition they were before when they had libertarian free will, before they grew calloused? In other words, can they just automatically get out of that calloused condition? In other words, before they become calloused, the provisionist would say the gospel appeal alone is sufficient to enable a response to someone to believe. But what about a person who's judicially hardened? If they're hardened, if they're blinded, if they're calloused, is the gospel appeal alone in that, con- in that situation uh, sufficient in and of itself to enable a response for a person who's judicially hardened? In other words, how does a judicially hardened person get a soft heart? What has to happen in them? Does God have to do anything internal, supernatural, or mystical to overcome the hardened condition? I've not, not heard an answer to that question. Because if you begin to affirm that God has to do something in the hardened condition to overcome that hardness, then why would you not affirm that God would have to do something before the hardened in a person who's totally unable? Now, I know their answer to this. In total inab- they deny total inability. So before you're hardened, you have libertarian free will to respond. Once you grow hardened or once God judicially hardens you, you can still get out of that, but God has to do something in you to do, to do that. Again, I haven't heard a clear answer as to what that means. Now, Isaiah 6, parables. You've got um, Mark chapter 4, 11 through 12. Let me read it from the ESV. 
He said to them, To you has been given the secrets of the kingdom, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, may indeed hear but not understand, lest they turn and be forgiven. Lest they turn and be forgiven. The New American Standard, I think, says otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. There's a lot of debate about that little word, lest or otherwise. Let me give you the, the, the NET translation. He said to them, the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those outside, everything is in parables, so that although they look, they may look not, or, although they may look but not see, and although they hear, they may hear not, but not understand, so they may not repent and be forgiven. So they. Now, we can argue about the grammar there. Otherwise, lest, or so that. Is Jesus speaking in parables to keep people in a permanent state of never believing? Or is Jesus speaking in parables with the possibility that if their eyes were open, they would be able to turn and be forgiven? Let's just talk about the use of parables for a moment. The use of a parable, I think, is for the hardening of Jewish reprobates in in a necessary fulfillment of Isaiah 6. This is a special Jewish divine hardening in Jesus' time when he's speaking in parables on the reprobate Jews of his time to actually fulfill prophetically Isaiah chapter 6 in time. I think it was a special period of judicial hardening on reprobate Jews at that point in time to fulfill Isaiah chapter 6. And and Jesus kind of addresses these Jewish people, these Jewish, whether you want to call them judicially hardened, whether you want to call them blinded, whether you want to call those that have been kept in a state of stupor from, from parables in John 8, 43 through 44, why do you not understand what I say? Is it because you cannot bear to hear my word? You're of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and a father of lies. Why can't they understand? Because they're of the devil, and they cannot bear to hear God's words. Now, if you're of the devil, does that mean that you have a chance later on to not be of the devil? Or is Jesus specifically addressing these reprobate Jews of that time who were of the devil that could not bear Jesus' words? They're not believing. It was not genuine faith because they were of the devil. Again, John eight forty three. why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You cannot not you will not, but you cannot. There's an inability. John eight forty seven. Whoever's of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you're not of God. You're not of God. If you were of God, you would hear them. So the assumption here is Jesus is talking to reprobate Jews who are not going to come to faith because they're of their father, the devil. They're not of God, and they cannot hear. They cannot understand. John 10, 25-26, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. 
Okay, notice the descriptions. You're of your father, the devil. You're not of God. You're not of my sheep. Now, is this a temporary judicial hardening of Jews at that time who later on will have a chance to believe after they accomplish God's plan of crucifying Jesus on the cross? Or is Jesus making categorical statements about these Jews at this time who were reprobate? I think the context leads us to believe that these are, these are reprobate Jews. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah 6 covenantally happening as an act of judgment upon these reprobate Jews in Jesus' time because they're of their father, the devil. They're not of God, and they're not his sheep. And because of that, they cannot, they will not, they have not the power or the ability or the desire to hear the words of God. And then in John 12, 37 through 40, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. This is from Isaiah 6. Lord, who has believed what we heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. They could not believe. So again, I think Jesus, in a covenantal framework here, at the Jews of that time, it was judgment upon them, reprobate Jews who would never come to faith in Christ, judging them by speaking in parables as a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 6. Now, let's deal with how the provisionists understand Isaiah chapter 6 and Jesus speaking in parables. The provisionists camp out on that little word otherwise or lest. And again, there's some debate about the grammar there. Let's just, let's just grant that Jesus is saying that if their eyes weren't blinded and their hearts weren't hardened, they would repent and be forgiven. What do the provisionists bring into the equation from their theology, from Jesus' words here? They automatically assume libertarian free will. And not that if anybody's going to repent and believe, God has to grant it. The assumption that the provisionists have with these parables is that people have the libertarian free will to turn and repent, but God is judicially hardening them with parables. In other words, the, the less they believe, the less they repent, the otherwise assumes libertarian free will. In other words, they would say that if God hadn't hardened these people, they would have the libertarian free will to turn. But God is temporarily judicially hardening them for a purpose so that the crucifixion might take place. This is not a covenantal judgment upon reprobate Jews as a fulfillment of Isaiah 6 that they're never going to turn. They're never going to perceive. But let's just grant that, that God does do a work and they, they do repent and believe after being judicially hardened. Let's go back to what we've said from the very beginning. If they're going to, lest they repent and be forgiven, lest they turn, otherwise we have to assume, and what we bring to the table, is that the Bible teaches that if anyone's going to turn to God, if anyone's going to repent, God has to grant it. God has to give it. God has to sovereignly regenerate. God has to grant the repentance. Jesus must give the ability to hear, see, and respond. 
The Son must choose to reveal truth to the elect. So, in an attempt to debunk total inability by saying it's redundant to blot for Satan to blindfold a corpse, or it's redundant to judicially harden those who are already born in a hardened state, the provisionist affirms, champions, libertarian free will, and they've denied God's sovereign grace in granting grace to the elect to believe. So again, what are the assumptions? What are the points of contention? When it all boils down to it, what are we, where are we differing? Again, we're not arguing that God doesn't blind or God doesn't judicially harden or that God doesn't do a work in people to blind them or speak in parables. That's not the point of contention. The question is why? What's the purpose of Satan blinding unbelievers? What's the purpose of speaking in parables? What's the purpose of judicial hardening? For the provisionist, the assumption, the presupposition is that God does not have a sovereign decree of election and reprobation of individuals. There's no individual unconditional election to salvation and God's passing over of others as reprobate. That's the assumption they bring. The other assumption is that in Adam's sin, in Adam's fall, that did not render all people born in a condition of guilt before God and spiritually and morally unable from birth to respond positively in faith. So they deny individual election. They deny total inability. And they also affirm that the gospel appeal is sufficient to enable a libertarian free will response. So, we as Calvinists do believe in judicial hardening, in blinding, in even the role of Satan in blinding the minds of unbelievers. But what we see this is, is God's choice to not intervene with sovereign grace on the reprobate for the purpose of bringing further judgment on them for their rebellion. Again, what are the two things we bring to the table? God has to sovereignly intervene in granting grace to the elect in order for them to come to faith. God does not bring grace, or God withdraws restraining grace, or God does nothing supernaturally in grace to the reprobate, but leaves them to their own devices. And so hopefully this has not been a confusing podcast, but we've kind of opened up some doors of conversation to show where the points of contention are, where the points of similarity are, where we come to the text and understand these things, because you have to deal with some of these things that the provisionist will throw out there. Things like, it's redundant to blindfold a corpse. That why would God judicially harden those who are already born hardened? Different things like that. You've got to be prepared as a Calvinist to answer the objections and the arguments that the provisions are throwing out there. And what I've, I've heard, I've heard some debates that Leighton Flowers has had with others. I've heard some conversations. And he'll throw these things out there. And I've heard Calvinists kind of be flat-footed and kind of not prepared and not really giving a, a, a solid answer 
or just kind of going back and affirming total inability without dealing with the actual points of contention. And so what I've tried really hard to do through Understanding Christianity, this podcast, is to truly pinpoint the points of contention between the Calvinist and the provisionist to accurately represent their point of view and to interact with some of their argumentations and to give some more clarity to the issue so that we're not talking past each other, but we're actually dealing with the points of contention. Well, I do appreciate you listening to Understanding Christianity. It has been a joy to listen to the feedback I've gotten over the many years from listeners. I thank you for uh, listening to the podcast on whatever podcast service you listen to. It would be great to give me a positive review and rating, to share this on your social media, uh, to get the word out about Understanding Christianity. Um, I'm not all that. I'm just a small town pastor in northeastern Colorado uh, that's just trying to honor God through um, helping bless the saints by bringing clarification to a lot of these biblical issues so that we would do a better job of understanding Christianity. May God bless you and would you always keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Jesus.